0: Hey guys, this is Pastor Kyle here alongside Pastor Tyler and Bailey. Grateful that you guys have tuned in to our podcast. We trust that what you're about to hear will be beneficial for your day. And we're grateful that you've stopped by to hear what the Lord is doing in Milledgeville. If you want to learn more about us, you can check out our website at tbcmilledgeville.com. Thanks for tuning in. Um, There we are. Grateful to be here worshiping with you guys again this morning. Um, Bailey mentioned this in the intro, but if you guys have one of those welcome cards, uh, don't forget, uh, we desperately love to pray for you guys as your elders. So please take the time to fill those out and drop them off in the coffee can on the way back out. So if I'm looking down, I know you're either taking notes or you're filling out those cards. Um, We love to be able to pray for you guys. Um, But if you have your Bibles, be finding your way to Psalm 16. It's the Psalm that the lady's just sang for us. Uh, We're going to really just exposit our way through this entire chapter here as we're continuing uh, in a sermon series that we've entitled Psalms Worship. So over the course of the past 10 weeks, if you've been here, we have been walking through Psalms of worship. We're simply asking one question, how do we properly worship God at any point in our life? So we started out this series, this journey, by starting uh, when life is good, when life is going well, how do we worship? So we took a look at uh, psalms of hymns, so songs of everything going well when we praise the Lord for all the blessings that he's done for us. From there, we went into psalms of uh, trust. Those are when you really have to trust God, when things are seemingly falling apart all around you. And Tyler did a great job for us last week capping our study through Psalms of Lament of how do we worship God when we're in the pit? How do we worship God when everything has fallen down around us? When we need him, how do we worship? So we're going to begin today uh, out of that pit, out of that lament into joy. So if you guys are looking at scripture with me this morning, that's our our goal is we're going to be asking one question. How does lament lead to joy? That's going to be our focus this morning. How does lament lead to joy? Because God, as we talked about in lament, has sovereignly given us uh, areas in our life that we are to lament over and in, and ultimately those laments will be turned to joy for his good and uh, our good and his glory. So uh, let's start by reading the psalm together, and we'll pray and we'll jump in to see uh, what David, uh, what the Lord has to say through David in the psalm. Verse one starts by saying this, "'Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight.'" At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So Father, we trust your word. What else can we do? What else should we do? So we come in looking to your word to see what it has to say about us, what it has to say about you, about your glory, your kingdom, your good news to us. So Father, as we come in this morning looking at these psalms of your servant David, of how he worshiped you, and how his lament was turned to joy. God, it's our prayer that you would do the same for us. Spirit, we ask that you would instruct our minds, that would inform our hearts, that would give action to our hands to live out your gospel every single day. Father, I pray that you would soften hearts already, that you would already be at work in your people, that you would remove anything I have to say, that it would all be for your name and your glory. God, you promise that your name and your word will be magnified, that it will go out and accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. God, we believe that this morning. Would you nourish us? Would you encourage us? Would you rebuke us if need be? Father, all of this is for your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. So as we're taking a look at the text this morning, let's start together uh, really in the first section we're going to see here, verses 1 through 7. What we're going to see here is lament is leading to dependence. Over these seven verses here, we've got a sentence here that uh, we'll keep up on the screen for you guys. You can take notes on, but just keep this in mind over these next seven verses. Here we're going to see that David cries out in lament. Preserve me, O oh God. We get to see that in verse one. It literally starts by saying, Preserve me, O oh God, for in you I take refuge. But he says, preserve me, O oh God. And back to that, that sentence there, his lament drives him to extol the multiple ways he depends on God. So what we get to see here from the outset is there is a lament going out. This is that lament we're talking about that we just finished that series on of how do we move from lament to joy? we get to see that lament is going to press us into dependence as lament pressed David into dependence on the Lord. That's why we see in verse 1 when he says, Preserve me, O God, that David begins with a lament to the Lord to preserve him, to protect him. This is a plea going out. This is a lament going out. But what is David asking the Lord to preserve him from or preserve him to? We don't see that here immediately in the text, but file that away we're going to see the answer later here in the text. And it's a beautiful, beautiful truth that shapes this entire psalm of what he's asking the Lord to preserve him from. So, what are you this morning asking the Lord to preserve you from? What is your plea? What is it that you are afraid that could happen that at any moment is it death? Is it financial instability? What is it that you are coming into this room this morning with as we talked about lament for the past three, four weeks? What is it that you're asking the Lord to preserve you from? Keep that in the forefront of your mind in this conversation because if the Lord is bringing something to mind, I promise that I'm I'm assured that he wants to answer that through his word and through his gospel this morning. So when we ask this question ultimately, How does lament lead to joy? The first thing we see in this section here is that God ordains our lament to drive us to depend on him. So we see this all throughout scripture. This is not just something I'm saying. Let's see that if God is consistent in this throughout scripture, we get to see this in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, when Paul is saying, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly Burdened, There's that burden, there's that lament. Beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. Verse 9, indeed we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. That lament was leading to dependence on God who raises the dead. First Peter 4.19 says this in a different way. Peter says, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will... You see, God ordaining that lament, that God is bringing us into that sorrow. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. There's that dependence on the Lord to entrust the soul to a faithful God. John Piper would say it this way. All human suffering is meant to awaken or increase our dependence on God and lessen our dependence on God ourselves. Where are you depending on yourself this morning in the middle of your lament? If Piper can so boldly proclaim that all human suffering is leading you to not depend on yourself, but to depend on God, why do we so frequently put on our backs the yoke of trying to take care of our own lives as if though we ever could, when scripture is saying, When David is saying, preserve me, O God, he is crying out, "O God, you are the only one that can preserve me. Do we not learn from the men of scripture that we can only go to God to be preserved? That's why he continues in the second half of the verse by saying, for in you I take refuge. David himself is saying, I have a lament, preserve me, God. In you, I take refuge. Is God your refuge? What is your refuge if not for God? Is it your own intellect? Is it your own ability? Is it your likability? Is it your finances? Is it your relationship? Is it your grades at school? Is it your job? Where do you run to when things get difficult? To hide. To cope. Are you not hiding in? God, are you not hiding in your Savior? Are you not hiding in the fact that the God of the universe sees you, knows you, is intimately equated with you, that knit you together in your mother's womb, that he knows your comings in and your goings out, that he knows everything about you, and he has sovereignly led you into the middle of whatever it is that is causing you anxiety to set your teeth, to cause your hands to tremble, to cause the the sweat to beat up on your hands. He has sovereignly led you there into suffering to cause you to be dependent on him. Christian, are you dependent on him for your all in all? Yes, you may be dependent on him for your salvation. You can say, yes, by his grace and glory alone, he has saved me. But the rest of my life, I've got it. I don't need to depend on him when uh, my relationship gets tough. He doesn't care about that. He's too far off and distant. Christian, are you saying, I don't need to depend on him as my refuge when finances are crumbling around, when relationships are just breaking and deteriorating, when my family members are sick, when I have loved ones passed away? Are you hiding in your Savior? If you can't say that you've ever thought of God as a Savior, as a refuge, but you've seen God as far off and distant and angry because of your sin? Let me be very clear. Scripture does say that there is wrath pent up towards sin, but praise be to God that he poured it out on Jesus Christ, his son, on the cross. Have you never considered that God is a place to hide in from his wrath? It's a beautiful dichotomy of God that we get to see that although there is wrath to our sin, there is grace found in him as well. That's why he continues. We get to see this dependence continually to grow. We saw the cry of lament of preserve me, O Lord. The first thing we got to see in this dependence is that, uh, that the Lord was David's refuge. The second thing we get to see in verse two is that he is his master. In verse two, David says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now, if you're just reading that, maybe the first thing that pops off the page to you is why is he saying Lord twice? Lord, you are my Lord, but if your Bible is printed as mine is, the first Lord is in all capital letters, and the second is not. So, uh, we'll have this here for you on the screen as well. If you look back at the original language in the Greek, Lord is, the uh, covenant name is Yahweh of God. And we get to see the second Lord in there is Adonai, meaning Master, Master. So what David is saying here in the text, he's saying, Yahweh, God, the covenant God, the one in whom I'm trusting in, the one who has called this people of Israelites to be, not only are you that covenant God, but you are my Lord, my Adonai, my master, the one that I serve, the one that takes care of me, the one that is my sovereign over all. Can you say that the Lord God is not only just God, that you can acknowledge that he exists and that he creates the world, but that he is your personal Lord? Can you say that he is your master? Does your life reflect that? Does the life that you lead say, you are my master, you tell me where to go and I will go? As we see scripture when Matthew says to take up my cross and follow me daily, what Jesus said there, If he's your Lord, you say, Yes, Lord, I go where you send me. David is depending on the Lord here as his master, as he knows. He continues the second half of verse 2 by saying, I have no good apart from you. No good. If you are my Lord, thinking about this in medieval times, if there was a Lord, the Lord owned not only the land and the cattle, but the person themselves. And that person had nothing save for their Lord. That's why they lived and breathed and died for their Lord, because their Lord preserved them. Is God that same mentality for you, that you have to depend on him for your all in all? What we're asking here, what David is depending on the Lord to be, is not only his, his only good, but his treasure, You see that in the text here with me when he's saying, I have no good apart from you. Everything in me this week when I was studying this wanted to say, this is David saying, I'm I'm depraved, I'm wretched, I have no good, I have no righteousness. And yes, hallelujah, yes, he says that elsewhere in scripture. But as he's hearkening back to his Lord, he's saying, I have no good apart from you you're my refuge, you're my master, you're my treasure, you're my all in all, God, I want nothing besides you, does your heart cry the same, Christian, does it come in this morning and saying, I want more and more of you, Christ, if there's everything laid before me, if I could have all my prayers answered, if I could have all my desires met, but I couldn't have you, which would you choose, Is God a celestial genie to grant your every wish or is he the one that bled and died for your sin and you get to say you are my treasure, my all in all? I want nothing besides you. There's nothing that will fulfill me. There was nothing that will sustain me besides you. We get to see that David sees that this treasure is so great in God that for the next two verses in three and four, that he goes on extolling about the saints, going on uh, loving how God has chosen a people and has sustained a people that live righteous lives. God is such a treasure to him that he even loves the people that God loves. That's why he says in verse three and four, as for the saints in the land, they are the the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He is saying that these wicked in the land, the drink offering is what the high priest would take to the altar and be poured out with a sacrifice as a fragrant act of worship. It's foreshadowing of Christ and his blood being poured out as a drink offering on the testimony of our faith. So when we get to partake in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we get to see that fragrant offering of that drink offering poured out. But David is saying here, man, your people were so excellent, God, that I am not even going to uh, pour out the drink offering of the wicked, much less even speak their name. He is fully depending on the Lord as his treasure and only thing good for him. We get to see this dependence continue. Verse five, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. Here, David is utterly dependent on God as his portion. If there was the finest banquet arrayed in front of David, if he could have any of the best food that he could want, the best wine, the best bread, the best meat, the best delicacies of the world, he's saying, if it was all laid out before me, God, you are my chosen portion. God, I am choosing you above everything else because nothing else can satisfy you're my cup. But I love how he ends that by saying, you hold my lot. Again, if he is depending on God to be his refuge, his treasure, his master, his sovereign, God is sovereign over everything in your life. I love in Proverbs when it says, the die is cast into lap, but the decision belongs to the Lord. The chariot is made ready for battle, but the decision belongs to the Lord. God is sovereign over everything all, or he is not sovereign at all, and David is understanding this and is saying, God, you have led me to this banquet. God, you have been my treasure. You've been my portion. What else would I choose? Why else would I choose anything else? You hold my lot. You know everything about me, and you have orchestrated it all together for my good and your glory. How often do you pause and meditate on where you would be if not for God's sovereign hand over your life. If God had not ordained you to be in this room before the foundation of the earth to hear his gospel proclaimed, to be in the city that you're in where you can hear the gospel freely proclaimed, to be in a country where you have scripture written in your own language. Where would you be if not for the grace of God? Where would you be if not for Calvary? Where would you be if God had not led you to exactly where you are right now? It all may seem random. It may all seem just like circumstance. It may all seem like just decision after decision of every day, day in, day out. Monday leads to Tuesday, leads to Wednesday. But God is sovereign over it all. I love there's a quote from Charles Spurgeon that comes to mind talking about there is not even a dust in the speckle of ray of sunlight that is not under the sovereign control of the Lord. Would we want anything else? Should we want anything else? else. Nothing else would satisfy if God were not our portion. Is God your portion? Is he your chosen portion if everything were laid out before you? Let's be honest with ourselves. If it not for the grace and sovereign will of the Lord, scripture is clear. We would not choose God. We are dead in our trespasses and sin following after the course of the world, following after the prince of the power of the air, by nature, children of wrath, none are righteous, no, not one. If God had not chosen us, delighted in us, we would want nothing to do with him. But we continue, we get to see that this dependence continues even still on the Lord in verse six. Verse six says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have, A beautiful inheritance. I I love that what David is saying here that his inheritance is not this tangible wealth, is not something that he can put a price on, is not land, is not uh, merchandise, is not anything save for God Himself. How do we know that? If you're looking at verse 6 when he is saying, uh, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, indeed. I have a beautiful inheritance. That pleasant places, the Hebrew word for that is namim, which means pleasant places. But also you get to see if we flip uh, to verse 11 at the tail end, we get to see that same Hebrew word is used when he says, uh, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So we get to see pleasant places, pleasures, are all found in the presence of God. What David is saying for here is that these lines that have hemmed him in He's not territorial. He's not just speaking to land here, Lord, you've given me inheritance of land. But what he's saying, why they have fallen in pleasant places is because that is the sovereign act of the Lord hemming you in to himself, that he is bringing you in to his presence. And why you have a beautiful inheritance is because you have a beautiful inheritance in God, So in the middle of your lament that is driving you to depend on the Lord, the Lord beautifully comes alongside you and hems you into himself and says, I am your inheritance. Even if you don't get what you're hoping for here on this earth, and this lament literally means the end of your physical life, take heart, take joy, because there is a tomorrow, there is a day where I will be your inheritance. Everything that you're wanting here that's temporal, that will be fleeting, that will be passing away, you will find fullness in me. How often do we look at God for things instead of looking at God for being the one that we want? What are you asking God for right now in your prayers? As we're going through as a missional community right now, we're talking often about this, about our prayer life, about what we're praying for. Is your prayer more often than not revolved around temporal fleeting, pleasures, that if you were to hold them up to eternity, to the sovereign, holy God of the universe, they would not compare. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with wanting to have comfort. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have joy. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be out of lament, but what I am saying is, if those are more numerous in your prayer life than God himself, I'm asking you the question, is God your Lord? Is he your master? Is he your sovereign? Is he your all in all? That's what David is saying here. That's why he's saying that the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Even in these pleasant places, we get to experience not only in eternity, but also today. As the Lord has brought us together into this community of believers. What has hemmed us in here, the boundaries for us, are not these four walls. What has bound us together is the Spirit of God, as we have been collectively knit together as a family, as the local church, to go and to see his inheritance spread, his children come to know him, that we get to go and into this community as uh, Alex and Bailey went door to door, here around this community yesterday, just inviting people into this community, of saying, Come experience, not for the experience of emotional experience, but experience true, genuine, authentic gospel-centered community that is surrounded by God? Would our view of God being our inheritance motivate us to go and to serve? I love how David ends this first section here in verse 7 with his final dependence. You get to see just hammered in over and over and over that David is saying that I'm dependent on the Lord the final thing he's dependent on is the Lord is his counselor. Verse 7 says, I bless the Lord. That's a way of saying, I worship the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, also my heart instructs, instructs me. He's saying the Lord is his counselor. This lament has driven him to seek counsel in the Lord, not to trust in his own heart. It can be a little bit deceiving here when you see the second part of the verse that says, in the night, also my heart instructs me. But Notice the order there is important, that he has gone to God, his counselor, and that counselor has then instructed his heart so much so that even on his bed at night, the Lord is leading his thoughts. Even as he is sleeping, even at his weakest moment, his most tired moment, the moments that we all have at the end of the day when we just come home and kick off our shoes and fall into bed, even that moment, the Lord is your counselor. Rest and trust in him for that maybe a a bow to put on this whole section for us of this lament driving us into dependence on the Lord is an illustration that maybe if you've been in church, you've heard for a while of how a good shepherd, if a sheep goes astray, what he does. A good shepherd, if a sheep continually is going astray, will break the legs of that sheep and carry them on his back until his legs heal. And every single time for the rest of the, of that sheep's life, he will follow closely by the shepherd. That we get to see in the middle of our lament, if it takes the Lord ordaining us to be broken, if he must break our legs to keep us dependent on him, praise God. But even more so, how beautiful it was that we should have been broken for our sin and that Christ was broken instead. And instead of depending on ourselves, He was broken and we depend on his atoning sacrifice on the cross. That we had the good shepherd that could have broken us. That we deserve to be the ones that were broken. We were the transgressors of the law. We were the ones that fell short. But he sent his son and himself to die in our stead. Hallelujah. This is the king that we serve. But we see that David doesn't stop here. If this lament leads to dependence, but this dependence grows us in confidence. We'll see this here over verse 8. We'll have this heading up here on the screen for you guys as well. What we'll see in this verse is this. David is calling to mind all the ways he depends on God as he grows his confidence that his petition of preserve me, O God, will be answered. I'll say that again. David Here is calling to mind all the ways he depends on God. And that dependence grows his confidence that his petition of preserve me, O God, will be answered. So don't forget this is starting with that lament of preserve me, O God. But as he sees all the ways that he is dependent on God, it grows his confidence. That's why he says in verse eight, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand I shall not be shaken, because he has set the Lord before him, calling to mind all the ways that he depends on the Lord. How many times do you call to mind the ways you are dependent on the Lord for your breath, for your life, your ability to see, your ability to walk, your ability to hear, your ability to worship freely, your ability to know him, to have comprehension, to understand, to see. All of these are just common graces the Lord gives to most of humanity that we take so utterly for granted. What are some other ways that we can set the Lord before us constantly? What about scripture? What about going to his holy word? How can we be reminded of what God is for us if we don't even know? This is why we hide this in our heart. This is why he has given this to us, this is why the Word became flesh and dwelt among men, and that we have this account of the Christ that came and ransomed us. How can you be dependent on a God you don't know? How can you say I am a Christian of a God you don't serve? How can you say that I am a follower of Christ and you don't even know what Christ did? Now, this is not a a, a uh, heat check for anyone in the room, but maybe this. Uh, curse word will spurn us back into encouragement that if we depend on God, we have, have to be dwelling in his presence. That's why Christ in John 15 says, abide in me, and I in you, for apart from me you can do nothing. We must abide, because in that dependence grows confidence. You can This confidence that we're talking about, we get to see David at the tail end of verse 8 when he says, I shall not be shaken. You see that his cry has turned to his battle cry. His cry of lament has turned to his cry of victory. That he is saying that I will lament no more, Lord. I am crying out for you to preserve me, but God, you haven't even acted yet. But when I look back at all the things that you have already done, You haven't acted in this preserving, but you've acted in so many other ways of preserving. I have confidence. So we ask the question again here, how does lament lead to joy? The first thing that we got to see is that God ordains our lament to drive us to depend on him. The second thing we see here from verse eight is that dependence on God grows confidence in God. Where better do we see this truth in scripture than in God's grace? Where better do we see this truth, that dependence on God grows confidence in God, than salvation? It's why Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, Paul would say it this way, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. Notice, there's no dependence on self here. It is the gift of God, not a, works, not a result of works, so that no one can boast, that the boasting here is is not in our own flesh, of not of our own doing, but as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that him who boasts, boasts in the Lord, that our confidence is no longer in our weak flesh of trying to deliver ourselves from our own lament, but our confidence, because we've been dependent on God, has turned to confidence that God has delivered, God can deliver, God is willing to deliver, God will deliver us as he delivered us from our sins. Whatever your lament may be, God may not be delivering you from them. He may sovereignly have you in them the course of your life to grow you to be more dependent on him. But praise God, he delivered us in that salvation. We get to see this dependence on God, growing confidence in God God, again in Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with, what's that word? Confidence. Confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We see that confidence that we can approach the throne of grace, that we receive mercy. We're dependent on God to receive that mercy. Dependence on God to receive that mercy grows confidence. It's why we can confidently approach the throne of grace. This is what David knew, This is what David experienced, that David knew that as he set the Lord before him constantly, that it grew confidence in his soul. And I love that, that he says he shall not be shaken. Do you have that unwavering confidence in Christ? That you will not be shaken? That yes, you may be pressed down, you may be persecuted, You may be reviled among many, but you're resolute. Why? Not because of your own self effort, not because of your own wisdom, not because of your own fortitude, because your confidence is in Christ. Have you placed your confidence fully in Christ? You said that you depend on Him, that dependence should grow you in confidence of him, that he is the only reason why you won't be shaken. He's the only reason when you feel like those waves are bubbling up and the breakers are crashing over the top of your proverbial cup. He's the only reason that you can even in that moment say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Your confidence is not so much in deliverance from, but deliverance to Christ. So this lament Journey that we're going across from dependence to confidence, ultimately to joy, is all in all about Christ. I think of this silly illustration of when I'm thinking about dependence on Christ and how it grows confidence in Christ. So maybe this might help you. Um, went on a cruise and went ziplining one time, and it was over this huge canopy. It's like a 200 foot drop and my hands were shaking. Uh, I'm like, how do I truly depend on this zipline and one little carabiner that's like skinny as I am, like holding me to that, how do I depend on that? Well, the first one, they just push me out of the canopy and I scream like a little girl. And halfway down, I realized, hey, this is kind of fun. And then then you go from tree to tree to tree to tree, tree, and by the second or the third tree, complete confidence, not even worrying about that carabiner anymore, not even worrying. I'm depending full-hearted on it. Is that your same mentality with Christ? Do you realize that you're utterly dependent on Christ? If not for that carabiner, I had no hope I was following. I had to be utterly dependent on it. Because you see, the more confidence we have in Christ's righteousness the more confidence we have to walk around because we're no longer confident in our own ability or our own flesh right nothing kills your confidence in Christ more than you thinking you have to earn it or keep it if you are resting in Christ for your righteousness alone you will have confidence how many of you guys don't even have to show hands have ever doubted whether or not God has saved you whether or not his grace is sufficient, whether or not you are truly saved in Christ. The best remedy for that is remembering it had nothing to do with you, but everything to do with your Savior, that his perfect life purchased your righteousness. So yes, you will fall down daily, but by God's grace and the sustaining work of the Holy Spirit in this covenant community here, the Lord will pick you up, this community will come around you and you will continue that race, not confident in us, not confident in yourself, but confident in the work of Christ on the cross and that he is sustaining and growing and shaping you. We get to see, as David wraps up these final three verses here, um, verses nine, 10, 11, we get to see that lament that drove him dependence, that dependence that grew confidence in him. And finally, we'll see this confidence burst fullness of joy. Here in these three verses, what we will see is this. David's confidence that he will be preserved by God births fullness of joy in God. David's confidence then births fullness of joy. David's confidence that he will be preserved by God births fullness of joy in God. We see this beginning in verse nine. David says, therefore, now, You guys have all heard the the pastor phrase, if you see therefore, what's that therefore for? If we look back at verse eight, where we just came from, that he will not be shaken. Because he's not shaken, his heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. Because of the confidence that he will be preserved, he rejoices. Now, remember at the beginning of this when I said, preserve me, O God, but from what and how we didn't have the answer. Just tune in here. This is where we're going to get this answer that will really tie a beautiful picture on this entire psalm for David. We get to see what David here is talking about. He hints at in the next verse. He's talking about, uh, excuse me, in the current verse when he says, my heart is glad, my whole being, my flesh. Notice he's talking about his body here, my heart, my whole being, my flesh, also dwells secure. Now, verse 10 helps give a little bit more context to it when he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the grave, death. So let's make this connection here um, that David has said, Lord, here's my lament. Here's all the ways I'm dependent on you. And because I'm dependent on you, I have confidence And that confidence is in Christ. But what about Christ specifically? For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not allow me to see the final death. Although this lament may kill me in eternity, I will not be separated from you. Now, if you have a little bit of church history, you might remember that David is writing this in remembrance of a prophecy made about him from the prophet Samuel. We'll have this on the screen for you here. Second Samuel seven twelve through thirteen says this. This is, uh, excuse me, uh, I believe this is Nathan speaking to him um, when he says, "When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." Now, this is a twofold prophecy of what Nathan was saying here to David, is saying that someone from your lineage is going to build a household. So Solomon fulfills that and builds the temple where the Lord dwells. But notice in verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is a prophecy of Christ, spoken over David, that through his lineage, the Christ would come. We get to see that this is the Messiah, Jesus. And that's why when we see at Pentecost in Acts 2, that we get to see Peter make this connection, we get the benefit of living on this side of history. When David had that spoken over him, I'm sure he was thinking, I'm not sure how this is going to happen. Peter makes the connection for us as we read in Acts two thirty through 32. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, meaning David, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he has not abandoned to Hades. That's the Greek word for the grave. If we go back to Psalm 16, Sheol is the word for the grave. Nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and from Of all that, we are witnesses. Tie the big picture together with me if you can here. David is saying, preserve me. Oh God, you have promised to me, you have prophesied over me that I will not see corruption. I will not see the grave. This lament is driving me further and further into death. It feels like you're going to abandon me. It feels like you have promised me something and it's not true Preserve me, O God. And when he calls to mind all the ways that God has been there for him, time and time and time again, it grows his confidence. And he sets before him that promise that this is a true promise from God, that you have a promise from God and a Messiah that came and did not see the grave, but he resurrected. And although you will die one day, you will see the grave, you will see Hades. But praise God that you will be raised as Christ was raised from the dead. That because of your sin and your trespasses, you have death coming for you. It's knocking on the door. It's coming for all of us. But praise God, we have a Savior, Christ, who came, who defeated the grave, who did not see corruption, and was raised. And because of that, your hope, your confidence is in Christ, That your inheritance, that you will be with him one day, and you will be raised with Christ and resurrected, that your death was united with his death, and your life will be united with his life. So let the mint come. Let the waters come. Let them push them further you into Christ and depend on him, because all it does is bolster your confidence for eternity that it's not about you, that this life is not about comfort. This life is about perseverance and continuance and going forward and trusting Christ and going and advancing his gospel, this good news of Christ, the Messiah, the Savior is what saves your soul. This is the gospel that Christ came and he died. He didn't see corruption but he ransomed you if you indeed a son or daughter of the king. It's why I love that this ultimate culmination of this journey from lament to joy, David wraps up in verse 11 when he says, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. Notice he's talking about internal, eternal implications here. The path of life, eternity, rather than the path of death that leads to eternal grave. He's saying fullness of joy rather than temporal joy. He's saying pleasures forevermore rather than fleeting pleasures. So as we get to see from this text, it answers our question again for us, how does lament lead to joy? We first saw God ordains our lament to drive us to depend on him. Dependence on God grows confidence in God. And finally, we get to see confidence in God births fullness of joy in God why Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 8-9, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not not now see him, you believe in him. There's that confidence. And rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Paul would extol this confidence leading to fullness of joy this way in Romans fifteen thirteen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. As you trust in him, as he is your confidence, it births joy so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sam Stone, Storms a, is an author, is a theologian. I love it, how he says it this way. He says, joy is not necessarily the absence of suffering, it is the presence of God. So, in the middle of your lament, it's not about the absence of that suffering. Your prayer should not be, God, remove this, but God, bring me to yourself. Because you are my portion. You are my refuge. You are my inheritance. Your fullness of joy that you're looking for is not found here, it's not found in people, in accomplishments. It's not found in anyone save for Christ. Everything else is vanity, as Ecclesiastes would say. Rest in Christ. I know maybe a way to help us encapsulate this picture. If you're in a relationship or if you're married, you'll know this uh, pretty spot on, is that if you have confidence in your, your significant other or your spouse, you tend to have more joy in them. If you can't trust the person you're in a relationship with, of who you're laying your head down at next to at night, there's probably not a lot of joy in the relationship, but mostly not a lot of joy in that other person. I see this often as I go through premarital counseling of the joy that's there. And then if you look at a lot of divorce, you get to see that joy in each other has often vanished. That we get to remember that as we have confidence in that, other person, and that they're trustworthy, that we will have fullness of joy in them. And this is the same dynamic. We talk about husband and wife. We talk about Christ as being our groom, and we being the bridegroom. If we have full confidence in him, we will have fullness of joy in him. Because although we were the ones that go astray and sell ourselves into spiritual adultery, that he, as Hosea, the prophet did with Gomer, goes back and buys us back time and time again as we are his children. That he is the faithful one, but we are faithless. That this is what it looks like to have confidence in God that births joy in God. So is Christ the fullness of your joy? Is he the only thing that brings you joy, not happiness. Let's define some terms. Not happiness that can come and go, that ebbs and flows and has ups and downs. But what makes you resolute in Christ? I can tell you, if you're looking for unbridled joy in God, if you've never thought you could have joy in God, maybe you haven't understood the God of Scripture like you thought you have. Maybe you have bought into something known as cultural Christianity. But for those of us that are in the body, what does fullness of joy look like from here? Looks like dependence, looks like resting in him, it looks like him being your all in all. So as we're we're thinking about this journey that we've made from lament to dependence to confidence, Ultimately, into fullness of joy. What do we do with this as the branch church? Where do we go with this? Well, if we know the way, according to scripture, out of lament to fullness of joy, and that fullness of joy is Christ, do we not have a good message to take to those that are in lament outside of these walls? There are so many people that are in lament that is not just a temporal lament but if they are apart from Christ, it'll be an eternal lament. We have the good news of the gospel shut up inside of us. We have brothers and sisters that will go with us. We have a great commission, co-mission that promises the Spirit will go with us. Are we going? Are we knocking on doors? Are we having gospel conversations? Are we taking this good news that yes, I may be hurting, but I also have the greatest joy because of Christ. If you can't say that, man, Bailey, Tyler, and myself would love to have a conversation with you. At this point, if you have realized from the preaching of God's word, if we went through all of those areas, how David depended on the Lord, if you can't say you depend on him for any of it, maybe Christ is asking you for the first time, do you even depend on me at all or do you just call yourself a follower? Repent and believe in the gospel and the faith that the Spirit will give you. we love to celebrate with you. But for the rest of us that are in Christ, let's ask this question one final time. How does lament lead to joy? We lament, but depend and trust in Christ. And fullness of joy will be yours. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that we can stand firm on it. Thank you as we have journeyed through your Psalms that we've been able to see as difficult as lament can be and inevitably births joy in you if we are trained by that perseverance. So God, would we not just take this as another message flippantly? Would you apply this to our hearts? That if we are indeed dependent on you, would we stop thinking that we can't have fullness of joy because of our circumstances? God, wherever we are in that spectrum, if we're still in the lament, if we're trying to depend, if our confidence is still growing, father we know you'll meet us where we are this is not about our self-effort but it's about your gospel and your glory so father we thank you for your goodness we thank you for your cross we thank you that you are the reason that we can have fullness of joy you are indeed our beautiful inheritance it's your name we pray amen